Alrighty, this podcast may contain language not appropriate for children. So if, if you wanted to have a discussion about, you know, brutal monsters who are slaying each other with firebolts and, and deadly claws, that would be a, a, a bit more child-friendly. You might have to look for another podcast, basically. <laughs> mm. So keep your R-Box at home, kid. <laughs> so that was the... Yeah, I had that moment when I read that. I was like, oh, so that's the panel you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> The infamous one. There we go. <laughs> I suppose that's as good of a start as any. So, how about that trailer? My good friend Emma asked me, when did they make the new Pokemon professors so sexy? To which I responded, um, they've always been sexy. Do you not remember how many people thirsted over Professor Sycamore and Juniper when those two were revealed? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, like, they're very devious in that they are, they, okay, we've got two hot Pokemon professors and making them re- v- version exclusive. <laughs> many accusations of biphobia on the TL. Oh boy. I mean, where's the lie, though? <laughs> I've got to say, I think I have a connection issue, and I basically joined in on uh, Pokemon Professors Were Sexy. It was a great line to drop in on the chat, whereas before you were totally quiet for me. I'll be honest, the male professor, what's his name? Professor Chadface. That's a straight dude. It's, I, I can understand how that might look appealing in theory, but it's, I'm having a hard time getting past the weird skin suit he's got under the lab coat. That's also... A very interesting little pattern we've seen with a number of Pokemon professors. Like, Professor Kukui was just, like, like tits out underneath <laughs> that lab coat. Just, like... And then Sonia is going full e-girl fashion. And I guess it's all fine because it's just underneath a lab coat. I'm just looking at it. I, I didn't know that, that Toby Fox, uh, like, composed more music for it. He composed the field music for it, apparently. Oh, really? Interesting. After creating a concept sketch, uh, Game Freak arranged so many versions that you'll hear throughout the game. Looking forward to more Leimotis from the Leimotive Master. It was interesting playing through Sword and Shield and then playing the... Uh, battle tower and then seeing a very distinct difference between the two different musical styles Mm. I think the fact that he it sounded like he was still using the same sort of Super Nintendo instrumentation that he did with Undertale it is definitely quite striking like you compare kind of the work he does for Game Freak because he also did Little Town Hero and it's always very strong but you could tell he's more in his element when composing for games that he is developing himself. I think that is a fair assessment. I think, like, uh, making him compose the field theme is uh, a much better choice than having him do a battle theme that, that has to really fit into that Game Freak music that, uh, that's, uh, that is very distinct itself. Pokemon music tends to be geared towards being able to loop. I, I do think it was an interesting thing where I imagine the main incentive for bringing him on was like, ooh, we should make him do the Battle Tower theme because he did the one Megalovania song. That's the one song everyone knows, so I think he... We should get him for that. When, honestly, the Undertale and Deltarune tracks that I've enjoyed a lot more were, as you mentioned, Wensleydale, those field tracks, because those tend to have a... You tend to be able to make those things a little bit longer and a little bit more complex, since you don't have to worry about looping them. With a game that he is composing all the soundtrack to, he's able to work in, like, like we said, recurring motifs... 
what makes the battle themes work great in his games, part of it, is the fact that he's able to bring back motifs from earlier to tell you something about the battle, uh, the stakes of the battle or the character, which is not something you can as easily do if you're just composing uh, sort of uh, scatterings of tracks. Yes. Honestly, th they should just bring him in for like another mystery dungeon game. That would be probably for the oh. best. Mm. Oh my god. That is a game that did some light motifs. Oh yes, in, mm. the, in, the, in, the, in the vast kind of break between the introductory episode and this one, Wensleydale and I did play through all of Explorers of the Sky and had a rather great time. Oh yeah, we, we've managed to play through the entirety of it. <laughs> I managed to, to get the bloody volumes in through the order that that was quite delayed. <laughs> Anyway, we should probably talk about Belmanga. <laughs> yes, let us talk about the actual source of this podcast and not us thirsting over newly announced Pokemon Scarlet and Violet Pokemon professors. <laughs> Welcome to you all to Podcast Mon Adventures. We are a retrospective podcast aiming to discuss the Pokemon Adventures manga, also known as Pokemon Special, arc by arc. So today in our little book club, we're going to chat about the first arc of the series based on the games Pokemon Red, Green and Blue. The arc spans over chapters 1 through 40 of the series, all very conveniently for us through the entire first Omnibus Collector's Edition. If you'd like to know more about our Pokemon journeys, our feelings on the franchise as a whole, uh, why ago we recorded a introductory episode to the manga that we're going to be talking about so do check that out it's highly recommended but if you'd like to start with this episode no worries some short introductions are in order either way so i'm wednesday cheddar they them and what about you two who are you are you a boy or a girl and what do you do on the internet my name is uh, dr hoven i am uh, he him I tweet about manga and video games and very occasionally podcast. Mm. I'd tell you to go watch my World Trigger video, but if that video interested you in World Trigger or if you're only already a fan, please read along with Duckface Diaries, the World Trigger read-through podcast that myself and Wensleydale do, where we tackle the World Trigger manga volume by volume. I am Henry Kathman, he, him as well, and I do too many things, arguably, on the internet, from making nearly three hour long video essays to other podcasts about Barbie to writing whole tabletop RPG systems. And I find myself a slave to the arts, my passions driving me towards the most ludicrous lengths. Pokemon Adventures or Pokemon Special, I do not envy the ordeal that you two had to go through in order to be able to actually accrue this manga because as a filthy American, it is pretty easy to get my hands on a lot of this stuff through, especially now that Viz Media is doing these really nice collector's editions that just compile entire arcs into just a single volume. Yeah, that's what I got, the uh, omnibuses as well. Those are very nice, I must say, but boy howdy, getting your hands on a lot of these later issues are... It's a bit, but not so much for this first one. Between the two of us, we own the whole series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Being able to just casually talk about uh, this manga is such a nice change of pace from so much of the other stuff because, ladies and gentlemen and others, I have some thoughts, TM. And 
I'm not the one who has to edit this, so I am unrestricted. <laughs> I apologize in advance, Wensleydale. Oh boy, I, I, I'm bracing myself for another th- three-hour recording. For the sake of your sanity, Wensleydale, I will try to I will try to tamper that somewhat for your sake. <laughs> Alright, so today we are talking about the uh, Red, Green and Blue arc, as we said, and uh, yeah, um, so as our resident newbie to the series, Hoven, how would you describe the plot of Red, Green and Blue? What is this story about and how did you find it? Well, the story follows Red, a young boy from Pallet Town and a relative natural at catching the weakling Pokemon in the area. And um, after a chance encounter with the legendary Pokemon Mew and an aloof, cocky trainer with more experience than him named Blue, Red realises that he has more to learn as a trainer and sets out to tackle the Kanto League Challenge. Along the way, he gets swept up in the thwarting, the unethical Pokemon wrestling and experimentation orchestrated by the sinister team Rocket, uh, a conflict that has the region's gym leaders split down the middle. Uh, he also meets other colourful characters on his travels, such as the swindler thief Green and hillbilly science man who has a tendency to reenact the horror classics The Fly, <laughs> Bill. <laughs> not to mention Dr. Avila Moreau. Let's not forget that. <laughs> Throughout the story, Rent's boundless compassion, ingenuity, and kindness for others is put to the test, culminating in an epic clash in Saffron City. And then another climax happens. And another one. And then another one. Red just can't catch a break. So many climaxes. <laughs> so many climaxes with these new hot professors. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. <laughs> so yeah, um, Wednesday Dale often described this manga to me as being a lot like the Shonen Jump series Undead Unluck and, uh, well, popular other battle series Seven Deadly Sins in that uh, it never really stops. Uh, and I found this to be sort of the case. Uh, it's highly condensed, but for the first two thirds it does follow a very episodic structure, where the longer arcs tend towards about three or four chapters, um, but in the, in the last third it definitely kind of coagulates somewhat. Yes. I'm definitely inclined to agree with that. I think something that does bear mentioning with the red blue green arcs of this is that this was being published around the same time as the initial release of pokemon uh green and red in japan it the first volume came out in 1995 and went all the way up through 1998 so i think something that we saw in this is the sort of challenge that uh writer uh hidenori kazuka kusaka yeah, Kusaka. Thank you. We were seeing the different challenges that uh, Hidenori Kusaka was having to face when taking a, when you get down to it, relatively simplistic uh, role-playing game story and trying to uh, expand it to something that could be properly published over the span over different manga releases. And I definitely agree that the first two-thirds of this follows a lot of that same episodic structure of let's take this vignette from the game and try to make a narrative out of it. And then by the end, having to deal with the potential quandary of, hmm, we don't know when the next one of these games is coming out and what's going to be happening there. So we should try to think of a way to 
conclude the narrative in a satisfactory way, which is why you get just all the different climaxes, <laughs> so many different ways of just concluding things. Yeah, it's like the the co- sort of the main arc of Red. Um, it kind of builds really nicely to the big clash in Saffron City, which feels like the culmination of everything and a really satisfying payoff. And then there's like, yeah, three additional climaxes, all of which are nice and have a lot of things I like in them, but are not built up to as well, because you can tell that they are trying to rattle them off. It is kind of a trend in the writing of the series that Denouement is not a card in Kusika's deck. It never offers much of a resolution, but rather moves on to the next big thing uh, afterwards. If I had to speculate, I imagine this did came out of Saffron City being the main intended climax and then having to deal with the obligation of having to adapt the final remaining story beats of the game, such as the confrontation in Viridian City, the Indigo League, as well as the potential buildup of the Elite Four. I'm not sure what Nintendo's policy was when it came to the publication of this manga, was but at least during this first third you almost get the impression that they weren't 100 percent sure how long this manga was going to be going because again this was being published during the very early life of pokemon as a series before it fully became the giant cultural juggernaut that we know it as today from these like last few climaxes, uh, I I would say that that uh, you could easily like cut the Mewtwo stuff out and have it take place fully in the Yellow Arc, which we'll get to next time. But oh, believe me, we will get to that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean there are things I I do like about the Mewtwo Arc and how it ties things up for Red, but yeah, it do- it does feel like the kind of the least the least necessary of of, of the set. Yeah, we, uh, we should probably uh, talk like uh, about our general th- thoughts on the series, but before we uh, go into specifics, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, I will say that that I'm really happy after reading the series. It definitely holds up much better than I expected. Uh, so uh, I guess you mm-hmm. could say that this manga is special <laughs> in my heart. <laughs> A, <laughs> I, I'm always surprised by how much like creativity, pathos, and humor, and just personality this story has. It, uh, uh, it, it tries to do so much more than just uh, like a regular tie-in comic would need to do. On top of introducing the audience to like the world and the game elements and creating inventive scenarios with different Pokemon species, it uh, creates a thrilling story that, that always like finds me wanting to skip over from one chapter to the, the next rather than uh, stop and take notes. Mm. So it was quite a struggle to, uh, to, to do the notes uh, for this podcast initially but uh, it was a great experience re- reading this and to give it some credit for how it works within its its own limitations um i think it does a lot of really smart storytelling decisions with what it's given um for for example how how it uses the gym leaders in that like okay you have the most distinctive sprite designs in the game how can you keep them in the story more often and you kind of have that idea of oh well Giovanni is a is a gym leader, so why wouldn't he also conscript other gym leaders into his uh into his ranks? You also have stuff like the um Henry mentioned the foreshadowing of the Elite Four in that just kind of running like cramming the Elite Four into this arc would not make for a very satisfying conclusion. So you you get to hold them off, assumably for the Yellow Arc, and actually have the resolution be about the rivalries that we've we've had ongoing 
for the whole series. This is a manga that people tend to hold, even if they are not avid manga readers and very casually into Pokemon Adventures as a story. This is the arc that most people tend to think about because... I think for a lot of Americans especially, we've had the advantage of having this sucker like re-released 50 times, and I've read the arc of this, the red arc, probably dozens of times over these past couple of decades since I first discovered it, and I agree with you, Wensleydale, when you said like the level of efficiency in a lot of this storytelling, despite being condensed into only 10 chapters, it is kind of remarkable how much they were able to fit within that short amount of page space. They were able to get across all of these different characters and being able to introduce a lot of the key mechanics and ideas of the Pokemon world in a way that is pretty easy to understand. I know we don't want to put make too many comparisons to the anime since that is its whole other beast with its own other set of expectations and guidelines, but I think something that you tend to see in Pokemon discussions, especially when discussing like serialized adaptations, is that people heavily use the Red Arc especially as sort of a dig against the anime, usually talking about this almost mythologized version of Red, who is so much better than that stupid Ash Ketchum. But I think <laughs> when people make those kinds of dismissive arguments, it usually ignores like a common thread that binds both the manga and the anime, and that fundamentally both of these stories are trying to not only serve as their own compelling individual narratives, but they are also meant to serve as something akin to an education tool as a tie-in. Both the anime and the manga had to theoretically serve as someone's potential introduction to Pokemon as a concept. Because of that, you have to be able to take mechanics that, if we're going to be honest, would be kind of hard to understand as, like, four- or five-year-olds, who is, like, the main target audience of Pokemon and being able to communicate it in a manner that would be pretty easy to understand. And the fact that both the anime and the manga were able to translate these things into, I would argue, pretty like decent stories and being able to translate what was a very, very simple RPG into this larger sprawling narrative Considering how, like, the Game Boy game looked in 1995 through 1997 and the heavy limitations that came with that, it is astonishing how well they were able to get everyone on board and on the same page about what the kind of main expectations were about telling a Pokemon story. I really think it was a smart choice uh, that for this particular story, Kanto is presented as like the Pokemon world that's still in development. Mm. For example, without getting in, into too many details, like uh, Bill is still developing his PC system. So uh, like Red has to walk around initially with uh, like 20 Pokeballs on, on his belt. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of discovery of the Pokemon world while following this story. Yeah, you, I mean, you mentioned him having loads of Pokeballs. I think that's one element that surprised me is that his team often has these 
brief temporary members that he's caught in the area that he'll just use for a one-off. Uh, and he has the long-term battle team alongside it, but like this iteration does not shy away from the collect-a-thong angle in the way the anime does, where it, which is interesting because it's like. This is the more streamlined uh, product of, of the two, whereas the anime is meant to be more long-form, so you'd sort of expect the anime to lean more into that, but it, it doesn't really. Well, I imagine that comes with some of the limitations that come from producing a serialized weekly anime, because, you know, animation's pretty costly and time-consuming, and I imagine it would be kind of a pain mm. in the butt to have to get your animators to draw a new switched-out team every single week. You would also have to take time out of the way in the episode to pause and be like, hey, I've switched this Pokemon out with this Pokemon, as the anime does tend to do whenever Ash has to switch out people in the team. Then again, uh, in the manga, we do have, mm -hmm. I think that element of being more collectathon is based on the fact that unlike the anime red is a relatively solitary character throughout mm. it compared to ash who has the benefit of also traveling with two other trainers and being able to showcase mm. a, a variety of pokemon from there and Red, yeah, and Red very much jumps around the region once his mobility options open up, much like a, a player of the games would. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also in in the anime, the villainous group is Team Rocket, and uh, obviously here it is as well, but but the kind of uh, different thematically. Over there in the anime, the theme is making friends with your pets as opposed to like stealing the creatures from the best friends. Whereas here, like the the dominant theme in the encounter with uh, in Saffron City, kind of nature versus nurture in a sense, like. So we have the uh, attention drawn to Pallet Town as special because it's untouched by by pollution. Its uh, its inhabitants have a special bond with the Pokemon. All of the champions were from Pallet Town in the Indigo League. Team Rocket, on the other hand, gets involved with evil scientific experiments. Yeah. So, so yeah. Team Rocket are in this are essentially the bad guys of Mother Three. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong, but. To that point of nature and environmental being environmentalism being a theme of this, that is something that does take its basis in the game. Poke, a lot of people don't tend to think about this, but Pokemon has always had a slight environmentalist bent to it, even from Generation 1, when you consider the abandoned house in Cinnabar Island or the power plant where Zapdos resides or uh, the elements where uh, Lapras's Pokedex entry talks about it being an endangered species. This is all stuff that is there, and I think a big strength to Pokemon as a franchise in terms of its spin-offs is that it is able to take this very wide pool of different concepts and themes and being able to choose which sort of pools to focus in. Um, and I think that leads to a wider variety of different stories that could be tell, and what I think helps to make the Pokemon world such a very interesting setting to be able to explore uh, 
in these different kinds of adaptations. Yeah. I do want to talk about Marco's art for, for a moment there. Oh, yes. I find it very pleasing to look at, especially in the volume release. I, I wasn't blessed to experience it in its full capacity as uh, as you two growing up, up in Poland. I only had access to the scans, I, as I said in the introductory episode. Uh, I do love the contrast between the cutesy chibi designs in the crowd scenes that, uh, that uh, make the characters look really dynamic, yeah. easy to draw, and uh, works with a brisk pace of the story. And, and then there's the more serious, detailed close-ups. Uh, so the chibi, uh, uh, stubby designs look kind of like the overworld designs of the, um, the human characters from the games, while the, the dramatic shots kind of look like battle sprites. And it, it, it kind of seems like a nod to, uh, to, the, to the games and that, and um, I really like it. it it's, it's kind of like a brilliant diamond and shining pearl do, do a similar thing. Yeah, I forget which one of you two said this, but uh, that point that was made earlier about this manga having so much personality being imbued into this. I think that is really reflected in Mato's art. When rereading through this volume recently, I found this little quote that they wrote in 1998 talking about like the artistic process. Like, quote, uh, Pokemon don't move in the video games, but in my manga, they run all over the place. What's the most interesting way to show each Pokemon in action? I care a lot about that. I would be very happy if after reading the manga, people who have never been, uh, who have never even heard of Pokemon become fans. And if Pokemon fans grow to love Pokemon even more than before. And so much of how they draw these different characters and the different Pokemon does feel very emblematic of that kind of desire to present a lot of personality and as you mentioned, that contrast between the sort of chibi, simplistic designs and and the more detailed battle sprites, it, it almost feels like it's meant to present the world of Pokemon as someone in 1995 through 1998 would have imagined it for themselves. Almost an idealized version of that. They mentioned how it was, you know, the, the big challenge is to get, show how Pokemon move, and there's definitely a lot of interesting approaches to this that I wouldn't have thought of. Uh, well, the big <laughs> one being that when a rock Pokemon is defeated, it just, like, explodes into a pile of rocks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think this happened with, like, an Onyx and with mm -hmm. a Golem. I, I do really, really enjoy a lot of Mato's art through this. Uh, we'll go into a little bit more about uh, the way the art has evolved over this series, but I think the fact that the designs of the Pokemon are still pretty recognizable while still having a distinct style to it. I think that's a really good testament to their eye for character design. I can think of no better example of this than the way that Mato draws Pikachu. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, fat Pikachu stands rejoice. <laughs> making Pikachu as Kirby-like as possible has is like one of the most appealing versions of the character, honestly. More like Pikachu, am I right? Christ. <laughs> so there's one arc where they go to Lavender Town, to the Pokemon Tower of the Dead, uh, and I love how 
creative the visuals get with like realizing these ghostly Pokemon. Like you have some with rotting zombie flesh, you have some mm. that are just skeletal, and of course it all turns out to be like illusions by Ghastly and stuff. But uh, it, it definitely plays with the concept in an interesting way. And it's something that you also see similarly to the depictions of Mewtwo and how they kind of show mm. its creation and the way it grows in Team Rocket's test tube. It creates a lot of interesting contrast between being able mm. to present this very cute and approachable world while not being able to shy away from the darker elements to it. Yeah. I think the art, generally speaking, tends to favor the dramatic turns in the fights as things that the page will focus its, like, real estate on rather than centering the actual attacks. Uh, those tend to be more incidental. Uh, with the exception mm. of, I think... The, yeah, the Giovanni and the final fight between Red and Blue. Uh, one slight nitpick I have about this is that I think framing that the ultimate yeah. outcome of that final fight as ambiguous, it would have worked a lot better if Charizard's blast back at Red's Pokemon had been given a little more attention. Because there is like a, a, a hot moment, hot minute where they're like, oh, which one? There's, there's so much smoke, which one won? Whereas, you know, in the framing of the previous panel, uh, Red's attack got this big central page and then Charizard is like this tiny little panel <laughs> and it's like I, I feel like it's quite obvious who's got who's won here <laughs> yeah I thought that it was unambiguous that it's red one I have to reread that <laughs> it was the panels leading up to it that they they, they draw a lot on like oh the, the dust is clearing and who, who's still about and there's like a false finish of of blue standing and then blue kind of dramatically falls over upon their defeat yeah I don't know how characteristic this would have been for mangas released during this time period most of my manga experience stems from volumes published afterwards so um i don't have much of a frame of reference for how this is within mm. its contemporaries but yeah. it tends to be a little bit more ambiguous in terms of some of the mechanics like pokemon battles it tends to primarily showcase like the big moves and the big twist and being a lot less granular granular and compared to say something like the uh anime i still think it has resulted in a lot of really interesting vignettes and scenes and i do think that Mato deserves a lot of credit of being able to take a lot of these very chaotic scenes and still being able to give them a relatively easy to follow play-by-play uh, play of these events. Sadly, she will not stick around as the artist of the series for long. Uh, unfortunately, uh, was it a hand injury that left her un unable to draw? It was. Uh, it was. I believe it happened around 2002 during the gold, silver, and uh, crystal arcs. And it is a shame because this is something that we have seen time and time again with a number of these different manga artists over the years and it is very emblematic of the ways that the manga industry does really really treat their artistic talent not as good as they should crunch is definitely a very prevalent thing i don't know how much it is different in the koro koro magazine as, as it is in shonen jump but so yeah i can imagine it's probably similar considering the the rate in which that they've published these different volumes yeah Shall we go into the our uh, our uh, details on how we thought of what we thought of the characters? Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, unless you um, have anything else to mention about the art, I'll I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. I'm gonna let you 
guys take the lead on that, because I said a bunch already. All right, so I do like Red. I um, I think I've I've gained more of an appreciation for him in this read-through than I did in my first one. He does have a bit of an everyboy, uh, like a 90s everyboy energy, but he has traits he's clearly defined by his kindness uh, to and friendship with his Pokemon. Yeah. But also uh, overconfidence and vengefulness. Those are the two big things. He uh, he doesn't like getting tricked by Green at all. Yeah. In, in like stark contrast to Ash, he's established as a big fish in a small pond at the start. Like, he's impressing all the other kids being able to, oh, look, I can catch a Rattata, I'll take the coolest, as opposed to Ash, who is, like, an underdog even in Pallet Town standards. You, you definitely get that sense that in contrast to Blue, he, he lacks uh, the wisdom in battle um, that he has. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, I do really like his especially strategic moments, uh, like the Pewter City Gym Challenge, like how he displays his skills in tactics, skillfully kind of using a Bulbasaur and, and obviously the MVP Polyamorous well. They can get all the, their opponents in one hit since, since he can't heal them because the, the Pokemon Center is closed down. With that penchant for strategy, I agree with all the stuff that you said thus far with Red. That sort of level of strategy, the fact that he does start off as less of an underdog to Ash, I think that is something that does uh, stem from the fact that they have way less time to tell this story compared to the anime. So I think it does help the story to start him from that basic level of expertise because unlike the anime, Red is, while Red is the POV character to a degree, I feel like there's probably less of an expectation for him to have to ask those basic, what does this thing mean? And how does this thing work? unlike the anime. Yeah, it, it's definitely, there's definitely a sense that his um, prowess for learning accelerates as the series goes on. Like, in the first few chapters, he is learning the basics, but then you have him, like, in the Pokemon Tower, he already knows of Ghastly without having to consult mm -hmm. the decks. Uh, like, he, he finds the dowsing machine off screen yeah. and stuff. He is still a bit of an underdog, but the, the edge he kind of gains over Blue it is clearly, like, his quick wit. So, like, he, he doesn't do as much preparation as, like, his rival, but he does think quick on his feet. And that is something that you're able to even see during the very first chapter of this, when uh, he has to uh, help Professor Oak take down this Machoke, and they're hidden inside the uh, Viridian City gym and he sees the lights peeking out of the window slits so he opens the window exposing Bulbasaur to the light and letting him be able to use solar beam because he to which Oak is like how the hell did you know this move this is a very advanced move to which he's like ah I just figured you know Plants turn sunlight into energy, so this guy has a plant on its back, so that should work. I mean, the real question is, how does this Bulbasaur know this move? But I, I don't want to get into nitpicking this. <laughs> Pokemon, Pokemon often evolve and learn moves at plot convenient places in this manga, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. We're fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. One detail that I really like is that um, Red's Bulbasaur is always a little behind his two rivals, Green and Blue, uh, in the evolution phase, and that it, the moment that Bulbasaur finally evolves is like a basically a mid-battle power-up in the confrontation with the three uh, birds in Saffron City. <laughs> it was very cool. That was a very cool climax. Yes. 
Uh, yeah, most of the time, uh, I think that, uh, that Red becomes very interesting by the relationships that, that he makes with the other characters. Blue is a great example of that, because uh, he also is kind of, I feel like, wouldn't be that interesting on his own, but his dynamic with Red is where the manga shines the most. I also enjoy the most when he his kind of edginess is shown in a comedic way, when it's shown in particular what he lacks as a trainer. There is a chapter when Red and Blue swap Pokemon by mistake, um, and, and I love how Red's Pokemon become all diligent and serious and very serious about training, but because Blue trains them, while Blue's become cuddly instead. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very good touch. Um, Blue especially, uh, as you mentioned, they definitely turn up the edge for this character compared to old Gary Oak. And I think that definitely works in the favor of this manga, where... I feel like in the game, Blue kind of has this air of mystery behind them since you only see them a few times in the game. I think something that definitely helps with, as you mentioned, uh, that core dynamic of Red versus Blue is really accentuated throughout this manga where you can see how both are able to grow out of that rivalry especially near the very end, where, as Professor Oak notes, Red starts off very rash and doesn't tend to think through a lot of their different attacks. And just being able to grow more and think about how he's able to uh, keep his cool and be able to shore up that sort of instinctual approach that Red often uses and being able to contextualize that instinct with knowledge it's very uh book smarts versus street smarts is the way that i would set red and blue apart versus this at the same time like uh, red in the final league match with blue uh, kind of manages as well to do his homework on pokemon i forget what what exactly move it was mm. but he does like throw back to something that, that he learned before from blue yeah and that's i think that's a pretty good way to set things apart i think the thing that you were referring to was when red switched out a pokemon after beating one of blue's pokemon as red mentioned hey someone once told me that you got to know your limits and blue realizes hmm someone once told me there's no satisfaction in weak beating a weak pokemon you love to see it when two people are able to learn from each other and adopt their better traits while still being able to keep their core personalities and ideas intact. Uh, yeah, uh, I found what I was referring to. It was like Red going, I guess you didn't know how maneuverable a Snorlax can be, Blue, when like Snorlax defeats Machamp with an aerial attack. Mm. I think, um, yeah, blue and trusting red with the soul badge in Saffron City Tower felt like a big turning point for the two of them. It's not just kind of, okay, I'll, I'll work with you for convenience's sake to take down this barrier. It's like he is trusting red to take on a responsibility, whereas before he treated him as a liability yeah. um, because because of uh, his, his compassion. Mm -hmm. At the league match later, he can call Red a friend, literally, which is mm. kind of the culmination of the, the relationship. This kind of makes the relationship more equal, and this rivalry is kind of more believable. I don't want to make a comparison uh, to the anime, but... but... I, I kind of do have to, since, like, in the anime, I, I often thought, why does, like, 
Gary even consider Ash's arrival? What is his obsession with this kid who can't even reach the same heights as him? Which is why his kind of bullying felt annoying. I don't know. I would flip that around, honestly. Why would Ash care about this privileged Gary guy who Gary was just... I don't know. I always read Gary as like this kind of like spoiled guy who kind of just got everything kind of handed to him. Like the fact that he had to, he got like a, he had this whole group of cheerleaders in a car that would just drive him from place to place (laughs) so that he never had to worry about like going anywhere on foot. My point kind of was that how does Gary find the energy to bully Ash like this? What's his point? Don't you have your whole Pokemon journey to do? Yeah, well, that's kind of what happens when you get everything handed to you, you know? You just gotta, you gotta be able to prove your superiority by taking the easy targets. And I think that this is a much better contrast to that, because in this, you actually do get, in the anime where Gary was kind of just given this level of assumed skill without going into much detail about how like what he kind of did or the ways that he was able to achieve some of the things that he does. In this, you do actually get an impression that, oh, the reason why Blue is as good of a trainer as he is is because he has clearly put in all this time, effort, and energy into finding his Pokemon strengths and trying to accentuate those strengths as much as possible, even if it is sometimes done for uh, slightly apathetic reasons, I would say. Yeah. Uh, do, do, you ha- do you have any more notes on Blue, uh, Hoven? I think that about, like, sums it up. You guys have kind of said a lot of what I was going to say, and that, uh, yeah, I think his dynamic with Red and how it evolves is very much the backbone of the series. And yeah, it's, it, it's, it's great that the series finishes on that, um, and, and showing how they've learned from each other. Um, I guess we can get into someone who I've put in my notes as... Teenage River Song, green. <laughs> oh, I was going to say uh, Teenage Fujiko, ri- That also green, works. I would say she's probably not a teenager, so she's probably 10. She is 10, even though they give her boobs. But they're not boobs per se, they're the... Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> Do we want to talk about how her Sabrina fight was drawn in the original Japanese? Well, that happens in the, uh, that happens in the yellow arc, doesn't it? No, no, it, it, it was here. Oh, that's right. Oh, I did not know about this. Oof. Sabrina versus... In the original Japanese release, uh, so, so once in, in the Saffron City, uh, Blue has her battle with, with Sabrina. Oh, Oh, yeah. I, I'm yeah. just Googling this. <laughs> right. Mm. Right here, the localizing team did the best to uh, to adjust and to, like, perhaps n- not not make... Uh, <laughs> not made, make some body-specific comments with this 10-year-old girl character. Yeah. Here, like, like she says, oh, j- judging by your flyaway hair and tacky outfit, you aren't cute and stylish like me. Uh, and th- then Sabrina s- says, uh, cheap shots, eh? And then Kadabra c- slashes at her chest and uh, uh, Sabrina goes like, I, I lo- lost my focus when she dissed me. Oh no, in, in, in the Japanese release, so Kadabra s- slashed her dress open and and, and two Pokeballs. Uh, yeah. <sighs> Were hidden in her boobs, and she was able to release her Clefairy and Jigglypuff. And it's like, yeah, hey Japan, hey Japan, I just want to talk. 
like no disrespect but uh what the hell um I, and i hate that this is the first thing that that we say about green uh, because like she is probably my favorite character for uh, for this series and and she is so much more than that cuz she's such a much more interesting character than that yeah. her introduction chapter is fantastic she mm-hmm. like the way her deceptions are built upon layers after layers after layers of, oh, uh, of yes. tricks how she always has uh, an escape route and and can get away with uh, just about anything it's just phenomenally entertaining and she brings a great energy to uh, to the series henry mentioned fujiko and yeah the the hijinks with her they have a very lupin-esque quality to them with how the, it's just constantly every time you think she's out of rope, she finds some other way to uh, to, to to get away or to get what she wants. Yeah, and I brought up Fujiko specifically because I I get the impression that those kind of unfortunate gags stem from the uh from the creators being like, oh, we want to add this sort of femme fatale type of anti-hero type character. Oh, Fujiko is a pretty good basis to start from assuming that you aren't really thinking too much about the actual age of these children characters but i do agree that she brings such a great energy to it especially since there is always that that degree of ambiguity with red where he's like is this person actually a good guy or a bad guy what is her deal why like the fact that after he helped to rescue Mew with her it's one of those things where it's like oh wow we did such a good thing oh it's this is great to which she's like yes (laughs) but also I got some exclusive first ever photos that are gonna go for a crazy amount on the black market bye and it's like so there's just always that grift which is especially accentuated by how Almost immediately after, she also returns the gym badges that she had stolen from Red earlier in the chapter. All sorts of, like, really interesting character work. Yeah, and at least you at least you think she does, but then later on in the Saffron City, we realize, oh, wait, no, she was playing the long game. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> she has the real one still so that she could use the device. You, you would think that Pokemon badges might have, like, some, uh, some bigger authentication process or something like that, but it's... Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, in in those Mew chapters, I was especially impressed how she hid her plan to make a quick buck with like another quick rich scheme. <laughs> Just the photos mm-hmm. of Mew were enough for her. That was quite uh, that was quite fun. Uh, and I also forgot that that uh, like uh, we did get some dramatic stuff with uh, uh, with her. Mm-hmm. I forgot that her greatest fear uh, was set up in the battle against Sabrina, and uh, and ultimately I uh, I love the the. Uh, resolution of uh, mm. of her character in the yeah. um, in the Indigo League match. I think we'll get into a little bit more about her backstory, especially in the Gold Silver arc, because they didn't go into a lot of detail about that here. But it's interesting that you mentioned the Indigo League battle because there is a lot about this that really demonstrates how Green's fundamental strength as a trainer, similar to. Her ability as a con woman is reflected in her battle style since most of her battle techniques involve using very evasive maneuvers as well as that image of her using her blast toys as like a jetpack continues to be one of the most just badass things that has lived in my head rent free when thinking about Pokemon. 
Mm -hmm. The way that the trainers battle essentially alongside the Pokemon is quite fun over here, yeah. yeah. We've, we've talked about the, her battle with Sabrina a lot, and I guess to go back to that, because you have the Command Triad, which are mm. the faction of Team Rocket that are the leaders who are also gym leaders. And I did find, one thing I did like is that there are parallels between them and the main trio in their matchup partners. Yeah. So, so Surge takes Red's arrogance to a new extreme in his whole casting aside his title and its restrictions for, for sheer power. Mm -hmm. uh, Sabrina matches Green's approach for manipulating opponents. And then Koga, much like Blue, equates Red's compassion as a liability. Yeah. I really like... one. I was saying earlier, one of the things I really like about the Mewtwo chapter is that it then has a kind of... There is this ambiguity between what Blue and what Koga says of it does Red's constant compassion get people in trouble more than it helps them? And then we see, like, what he has done has influenced one of the, the you know, um, Blaine, who is working as a scientist for them, to switch sides. And I think that's a really nice way to kind of kick back at that notion. Yeah. Uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, you talked a little bit about um, Team Rocket uh, earlier on, and I do have to reiterate that that it was a really great choice to, to make, like, over half of the gym leaders part of Team Rocket. Eight strong, charismatic characters on the good guy's side uh, can be a bit of a pitfall in battle manga, as then you have to try really hard to make the antagonist seem threatening. Here, Kusakar avoids that pitfall by yeah. going, why don't I just make those uh, charismatic characters the antagonists? Uh, yeah. So this way, Team Rocket can uh, still be a regular old mafia, the world can uh, still feel threatening without a world-ending catastrophe, and gym leaders can be natural, naturally introduced into the story and not feel incidental. Uh, I feel like, for better or for worse, this is really an element of the manga that, that uh, contributed to like its reputation as a more mature version of the Pokemon world, as the threat is always there, the authority isn't always on your side. Mm-hmm. I also really liked how how um the they used the Pokemon in it because the Team Rocket have been modifying the Pokemon. They you they incorporate that into the the Saffron City matches. So like Surge just has a bunch of Magnemites powering this like Voltorb launching Gatling gun thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. like, I guess more I guess more like a grenade launcher. Uh, and then um, Koga is using his um, Ninja Star Pokeballs. Yeah, and his and his muck is like uh, uh, making a sort of poisonous armor for him. Also, sort of on the line with Sabrina, we see how her Kadabra ends up impersonating Professor Oak at one point. This is one of the instances where we get to see one of those rare instances, an Oak impersonator. Which, if you played the trading card game, you might remember that card showing up in a couple of places. Oh yeah, it's an interesting thing where. This imposter, Professor Oak, showed up, like, once in the, like, Johto League anime. It was primarily a uh, original, which, like, as a concept, it's kind of cool to see that idea of, like, oh, someone's impersonating a, like, this trusted figure. It's, I'm surprised that we haven't seen that kind of an idea iterated upon more. Yeah, in a sense, like, the, this manga does a uh, kind of a better job at, at uh, being true to the, the words of the uh, anime opening, oh, you're my best friend in a world we must defend. One thing I really, I, I thought was very well handled throughout this manga is 
how Giovanni was characterised. I really liked his introduction with his facade as a friendly stranger. We already know to be sinister from the very start of the chapter because we just see a like a statuesque mm. bust of him. Uh, so we immediately know it's him. Uh, it's interesting how the games would kind of emulate this with people like Cyrus and Lysandre, although they're just looking shifty right from the beginning. So when you find out they're the boss, it's like, yeah, of course they're the boss. Um, yeah. yeah, we get this like spiel from him about how Red is no threat to him and will destroy himself. And yet he decides to take down the Magmar that were going after him. So it's very clear that he has an interest in Red's continued journey, even if he it's only for curiosity's sake and he won't like admit that to himself out loud yeah although it is kind of funny how like in presenting him uh, as a harmless figure at first in his kind of facade uh, with red there mato turns to uh, kind of presenting him his face in a very goofy <laughs> way yeah it, it does look a little bit goofy at first sometimes with those goofy faces uh, it, it's kind of hard to see him as a thread there but also in in another sense his deceptive nature is kind of built up so, so i do appreciate that yeah and then his his final battle with red is a really good test of red's metal of everything he's he's learned up until that point Definitely. Especially with the plot beat where he says that you have only five seconds to do this for this attack. It would be impossible for you to be able to do this. And this caused Red to be able to to have to really think on his feet and take advantage of all of his capabilities as a trainer in order to be able to actually survive that ordeal. One thing I have to wonder, how how many days was Giovanni just stood there waiting in that empty gym for Red? I I, I hope it was several. <laughs> <laughs> Probably had like a little camera thing set up all around Viridian City to be like, oh, there he is. All right. And just immediately hightailing it over there as soon as like he shows up on the on the radar. Get like a sleeping bag. <laughs> I find Misty a very fun character here. There are many facets to her personality and like especially her determination to stop Team Rocket uh, in contrast to like Red's once lax attitude. And of course it's quite satisfying to see her single-handedly obliterate that giant Dragonite. Oh yeah, I... This, maybe this is just my anime bias showing, but I really, really enjoy just the kind of uh, relationship that... Uh, Misty and Red kind of have throughout this like even in that introductory chapter with her trying to capture the uh, Gyarados and the two of them having to travel to Mount Moon together and then Red having to realize oh man I've been really underestimating Misty as a traitor because of my my old sexism my 90s shonen sexism so I need to Drink my respect women juice, because even though Misty looks nice in that uh, ballroom gown that she wears, she'll still kick your ass. Yeah, it's like the, um, Misty is embellished in completely different ways uh, in the anime and manga, because in the anime he actually had her, like, three sisters who also were, the gym were joint gym leaders, whereas in this one... She's kind of this aristocrat figure in, in uh, Cerulean City. Which... I mean, that was somewhat in the games as well. She had that, even in Gen 1, she had the description of being the, quote, mermaid of Cerulean. This, like, kind of, like, high-class type of girl, according to a lot of the descriptions. So I think those are two, like... As all mermaids are. <laughs> indeed. I think that is a... I don't know, I think that's a very interesting parallel to draw there. Is there anything else about the other gym leaders? 
I find Erica quite nice in her introduction and, and then in her role kind of built up to be... We already have kind of experienced several gym leaders from the game to, to be like on Team Rocket's side, so, so we already have the expectation that it is a possibility. Then Erica kind of subverts that, and th th then she kind of becomes the has the leading role in in leading the citizens of of Celadon and um and the whole resistance against Steam Rocket. Yeah, that's true. Although I will say the fact that she was very willing to have Evie killed for all of that, I don't know, there was a level of hardcore attitude that is nicely deceptive considering that she has this very fluffy passive first impression when we first see her that there's a nice, it, it does keep you kind of questioning a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, I've talked about uh, the gym leaders not feeling incidental d uh, due to the um, due to those storytelling choices that that Kusaka uh, took in like tying them to Team Rocket. Yeah. One exception uh, among gym leaders, uh, which uh, uh, does make them feel incidental, is Brock. Yeah, he is just kind of there. I don't know how this manga managed to create a more boring version of Brock than, than any other piece of media in the Pokemon franchise. Like he shows up and he's like, "Oh, okay, I, I guess he'd, I guess he'd be on their side." Okay. He just seems like, "Uh, I'm this angry pro wrestler type <laughs> of dude." Oh, rocks. I, 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 I hang out in my in my private suite with all my pokes, folding my arms, mm, <laughs> looking very serious. In fairness, Brock, they don't give them exactly a lot of material compared to like other like in the games compared to like the other gym leaders brock doesn't exactly have a whole lot of stuff going for them like with characters like lieutenant surge you can identify oh lieutenant surge is army dude sabrina oh she's psychic lady oh koga he's a ninja brock is just like i i'm shirtless i like rocks all that to say it kind of makes me somewhat appreciate the anime's ability more to flesh out brock compared <laughs> to this because that the anime's first instinct when it came to fleshing up Brock was, hey, what if we made him really horny? I mean, uh, he is the breeding expert, yeah. Oh my god. Oh! Okay, well, all that said, uh, I do hope not to give too much away, but I will say Brock does end up getting a little bit more characterization in some of the future chapters after this but it i mean i guess that is kind of that is kind of the advantage of them going over the region like more than once they can kind of they can flesh out elements that they weren't able to with yeah. this particular arc but i definitely agree they've done brock dirty in this one they could have maybe added this beat that was added in future games where brock is a big helper for the pewter city museum because they talk about how he helps them like trying to excavate fossils and stuff for historical research i felt like they probably could have that could have been an angle that they could have added in perhaps to better introduce the element of pokemon fossils since they kind of just drop that and then uh one they introduces red's aerodactyl later on but i it is hard to imagine what else they could have really done with Brock in this manga, considering how little about the character there really was at that point uh, when the series was just starting off. Yeah, and th they had basically G uh, Giovanni um, handing the old Amber to Red instead. Before we uh, get to our other notes, um, I do have one more character note, uh, which is about the MVP of this arc. 
as a whole, and I think that uh, we can all agree that it's Pidgeybot. <laughs> <laughs> They're a Pokemon robot whose purpose is to yes. ke keep the customer of the Safari Zone safe, and uh, after some oh wacky hijinks involving some poaching on, on Red's part, not cool, after Red is kind towards them, they, they display uh, fear for his life, and, and they become the emotional core of the series, truly. So, long live Pidgeybot. Long live Cinderella Bird Robot! Indeed. Indeed. The fact that they got you to care so much about this little piece of metal is astonishing. Especially, I do want to give extra credit towards Mato for being able to show a like a clear difference between regular Pidgeys and this uh, robot Pidgey. A-plus character design. It was excellent. It's a bold choice that they made Bill Southern. I guess he would have had a Kansai <laughs> accent in the games, because that's usually how those kind of accents are translated. <laughs> Which, that's very interesting. I do appreciate the fact that they made Bill kind of like this sort of tech exposition guy that could appear every now and then to help Red out when he needs, like, a new gadget. I think he's fine. The fact that he's such a bit of comic relief. It's a nice uh, blending of being nice comic relief and clearly being like an expert in what the different fields that he's discussed. I have only one other character thing to note. They made Professor Oak so buff in this. <laughs> Man is hench. Yeah, the only other thing I've got is that I think another initial reveal I really like is that the leader of the team Rocket Squad in Mount Moon is Koga. It's like, it's really well played because he's just got the cap on and he's got the little scarf and the and the, the fishnet shirt. But then it's like the moment that he takes his cap off, you realize who he is and it plays on your awareness of the game character in quite a cheeky, fun way. Yeah, I agree. Great foreshadowing. I, I actually have one last character thing. I think it also bears mentioning the president of the Pokemon fan club being this unhinged old man. Like, the fact that he just yes. casually tried to steal someone's uh. Pokemon at the Pokemon League. Sir, what are you doing? Is all I'm, I'm gonna ask. Also, why are you publishing, like, zines of the Pokemon fan club talking about, quote, that's the last time I'll take a bath with my tentacruel. Yep, I, I picked up on that one. <laughs> it's like, sir, <laughs> sir, what, what kind of fan club are you running here? Uh, Boycott the Pokemon fan club. The Pokemon fan club captain is, is a pest. <laughs> I think I was like very innocent when reading this because I, I didn't think too much of it. I thought it was like, uh, oh yeah, it would it would make sen sense that that uh, you wouldn't take a bath with your tentacle because like uh, you would be burned by by the uh, yeah uh, by the little tentacle. So so uh, it, it's a jellyfish after all from the acid. Yeah. I completely didn't pick up on the implications there. I mean, to be fair, I didn't pick up on that implication when I was... I don't think I got full grasp of that until I was like maybe 17 after having read the manga for like five years. And then just being like <laughs> kind of embarrassed that it took me that long to put two and two together there. So rest assured, Wensleydale, you are not alone. <laughs> All right. Uh, shall we get to the random observations? Yeah. Let's do it. Starting off with, oh my god, Pokemon poop? <laughs> that was that was, was like a like, that was a weird realization when when Pidgey just uh, put some droppings onto Oak in like the second chapter. <laughs> well, I mean, in uh, Diamond and Pearl, they have Pokemon fertilizer as an item, so it's... Oh, so they do. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's not without precedent, but yeah, that's that is a it is suitably gross, but. 
I do think that does speak to the fact that uh, something that this manga does very well is that it does actually give a very good sense of these of Pokemon as being actual living, breathing creatures with their own kind of biology and making it have a sense of believability. Because again, I do want to stress this game, like this manga, was being released when the only other mainframe of reference for Pokemon as creatures was this very simple Game Boy RPG. Yes, and, and, I, and I would say that uh, at one point in the story we get a very good uh, vertical slice of that biology. <sighs> <laughs> okay, should we talk about that stupid Arbok? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's funny because you've told me that like a lot of the fans build it up as being so dark and so kind of gruesome, and it's like, the way it plays out, it's it's more striking and like, a, oh, this is like a Tom and Jerry, like, skit moment. <laughs> <laughs> with like the fact that there's no blood and there's just kind of like a, a bone and meat inside <laughs> I mean people thought Arbok getting chopped in half was brutal honestly I thought like Bellsprout fucking draining the prey uh, of all life force mm. so they can evolve that was way more terrifying to be honest <laughs> yeah exactly or the thing I would point to is when there was that one uh, Hypno that was attacking Erica and her vile plume just covers the thing in like leaf shurikens and it's just lying on the ground like dazed with all these sharp leaves sticking out of them or the fact that Eevee you get to see how their body is being like physically mutated in a process that clearly causes pain to this Pokemon like that is way darker than all that kind of stuff I think most manga fans at this point are kind of just annoyed by that one Arbok panel because it's very it's very clickbaity in terms of why it's shocking. It doesn't really need a whole lot of explanation for like, oh, why it's so dark. Cause the other darker elements that you do see in this manga, especially with like the final confrontation uh in Saffron City, as well as the stuff with Eevee and the way that Team Rocket experiments, that is stuff that is more conveyed just through um like character reactions and emotions and it's way more subtle than i think this panel might lead certain people to believe i tend to give people the side eye whenever they talk about how like oh this thing is so dark because they did insert violent thing here or, oh it's so much more mature because Usually the people that kind of make those kinds of arguments, I don't know, I always get the impression that they're really, really trying so desperately to prove that, hey, I'm a, this stuff isn't just for kids, it's, it's, it's got, it's got blood and stuff, it's for grown-ups. Mm. I mean, even in, in the kind of physical uh, stuff, in the physical horror uh, of this manga, uh, you could point to much better examples. For, uh, for example, uh, the thing I was shocked by, it turned out to, to be like a bit of an illusion. In the chapter with Bill, Red was fighting against that Fero, and the Fero fucking drill-pecked Poliwhirl right in the center of its spiral. It, it, it just yep. went right through. Uh, this was much more striking to me. And impaled him, yeah. Yeah, or you mentioned earlier Giovanni attacking those Magmar that were going to attack Red. Having those 
magmar encased in ice and the ice shattering into a bunch of different pieces where you could still see the big chunks of meat still like inside the ice I feel like that's i don't know that feels way more disturbing versus any of that i think for me when it comes to those kind of darker elements i think it it is one of those things that sometimes people dismiss it for the comic being edgy for edgy's sakes, you know, being like, oh, look how look how badass we are. We're way cooler than the anime guys. I, I think it kind of more speaks to the fact that something that the manga does really well is it does convey the fact that Pokemon are very powerful creatures and there is a very visceral element of danger that can be found with these abilities and with these creatures. And as such, they these are things that it reinforces some of those uh, environmental themes we talked about earlier, you need to be able to respect that. Hey, if you don't properly treat nature properly, it's going to be, it's going to cause some uh, big problems for you down the line. Yeah, uh, I do have some criticism towards how the story handled the, the game elements, which uh, obviously is justified uh, given that the games were very new at the time. This will seem nitpicky, but some game inaccuracies uh, do kind of bring me out of the, the experience. Uh, so I mostly like how the battle moves are used creatively to interact uh, uh, with the environment and so mm -hmm. on. But then there are some choices that, that are neither creative nor should be very effective. Like, using poison powder to knock out uh, the enraged Nidoking who is poison type himself, it's kind of a no-brainer, it's kind of sticks out as a sore thumb. Especially in, in otherwise a very fun chapter that displays uh, Red's tactical skills with limited resources in a creative way. In the battle with Giovanni, uh, there's Pikachu's Thunderbolt uh, being an ace in a hole against him with his ground-type Pokémon. In which, um, it wouldn't bother me but that we have the text kind of contradicting himself because like back in the battle against Eevee when he was turning into Jolteon Red I believe sent out Diglett to counter that because ground type Pokemon would be effective against him so there is some matchup stuff that, that does kind of contradict itself but again this was a very new game with quite complex rules with uh, 16 uh, different um, sorry 15 different types that, uh, that you have to remember so it's completely understandable that that turned out the way it did yeah well in speaking to that battle with giovanni wensleydale like i think i don't know i think i get the impression that the reason why they went with pikachu being the deliverer of that final blow is kind of by that point i imagine they had figured out oh, okay we're gonna get this follow-up with pokemon yellow we're gonna pikachu is gonna be the center of that cool let's build up pikachu as this powerful thing yeah, and, and the, there's the payoff with Red uh, turning the, the weapons of Team Rocket against Team Rocket. That was very thematically satisfying, and I did really like that. And I wouldn't have mentioned it if if not for the battle with Eevee, but yeah, again, this is kind of nitpicky. In terms of interesting flavouring of moves, I think Bulbasaur's Sleep Powder, it, the fact that it starts with a seed that bursts and then disperses, Whereas I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but the one the the version that I'm more used to is just it, the Pokemon just launches the powder directly. So that was a fun way to make it more specific to that Pokemon and how how it would how it would work. Another move embellishment was that substitute like actually attacking things and kind of being like a hologram projection that can actually do things. That slightly threw me. I always imagined it as just kind of a doll is summoned and then the Pokemon just kind of attacks from a hidden location. Perhaps yeah. just right behind the doll. I appreciate the creative usage of Ditto 
on the part of Green, the fact that Ditto briefly is used as a sort of mask mm. to appear like Sabrina. Again, kind of giving some of those Lupin the Third and Fujiko parallels. The way she uses all of her Pokemon is very interesting how the Squirtle evolutions and Jigglypuff are her main means of escape, then there's Ditto. Her team is quite fun and um, and kind of chosen to like embellish her role as a as a rogue, as a thief. This is more of a nitpick, but um, it's not helped by the black and white manga, but Aerodactyl and Charizard look very similar in Mato's art style. But yeah, th- there is a similarity there, although... I don't know, I think they tried at least to make Aerodactyl kind of more bony and thin as a result, but you're right, it, it is, there are a couple of instances. There was a part where, like, I think Red and and um, and green, and uh, Blue were both flying around outside the tower or outside the barrier, and it was like, there were a few panels where like, wait, wait, why is, why is Red with the Charizard? Oh, oh, that's Aerodactyl. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I liked Angela the Tangela. It's just it's just a great nickname for it. <laughs> <laughs> I did love some references in that. I love how apparently Mickey Mouse exists in this universe. Like since early on, Red makes a comparison b- between him and Pikachu. Also, Team Rocket make a reference to Tom Sawyer. There was a, there was an M M&M and M in there. Will the real Blastoise please stand up? Uh, <laughs> B- Blue is a connoisseur of of white boy rapping. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, Archimedes exists in this universe as well. Although we uh, we never uh, we never did get to the Greece region. Well, yet at least. Yet, yeah, give it time. We'll get there eventually. I think this is my standout comedic line in the Cerulean City mini-arc, when kind of Missy reveals herself as a gym leader. It's supposed to be a serious moment, but I find it quite funny. Red is like, where is this moron gym leader? And Missy's like, that moron is me! Uh, it's like that Simpsons line of just like, uh, the moron next door closed early. Will I happen to be that moron? <laughs> Misty, I I get the, you get the intent, but it's like Misty, that didn't that didn't work as well as you might have thought it did. Uh, a few notes on the on the localization. Everyone keeps saying Thuey, uh, like the Donald Duck. Uh, like, uh, was this still a child friendly expletive in the states in the late nineties? I wonder. Oh yes. Okay. Okay. I d- didn't know. I think the most interesting choice of words was when Red described Pikachu's bad temper as uh, ornery. I had to I had to do a bit of a Google for that one. Yeah, same here. There is a couple of like little things about the way they talk here that does feel a little bit vintage in terms of the ways that sometimes Ash does talk with this kind of like 90s cool <laughs> kid bravado. Surf's up, dude, type of stuff. <laughs> it only does happen intermittently enough, but every time it did happen, I'm a little like, oh... Oh, the 90s. You were a mistake. Uh, but, we, but we love him for that. The awkward transition from 2D to 3D uh, in video games, the, uh, the, the slow integration of CGI into movies, and, and all of the, the crazy Dutch angle lenses we got. Oh god. Uh, but yeah, no, um, I think my last note is that I really love uh, Koga's little Golbat screen on his, uh, his little PDA, but that was a very cute little detail. Yeah. A few more notes on the localization. So in in chapter one, the Team Rocket me- members that, that uh, Red meets um, ha- have great balls marked with the letter S, because the original name of uh, of that particular device is uh, Super Ball. So that's uh, that's one thing that has been omitted from the localization there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Trying to think if there are any other big instances I've seen. It is interesting that, uh, in terms of the localization, how very early on in uh, Pokemon, 
there was still a very distinctly Japanese identity that you could ascribe to much of Pokemon. Like, uh, you see this a lot in the early anime as well, where uh, there are a number of, like, instances where you can see how, oh, yep, they're clearly uh, doing that, doing a pastiche of this element of life in uh, the Kanto plains of Japan. Like, Erika's whole aesthetic kind of giving off a lot of those... I don't think they're going for, like, a geisha type thing, because that's not a... They're trying to go for, like, a more... Uh, I think she's just, like, a noble lady. Yeah, like, something from, like, a feudal Japan noble. Yeah, she just uh, has a bit of a, a traditional... Uh, noble vibe i think yeah which i think ends up like accentuating some of those dilemmas between like the conflict between modernism and like sort of tradition and environmentalism which is kind of present you see a little bit more of that actually mm. in the gold and silver arcs in the future but we will get to that when we get to that mm-hmm a few notes on the game references. I do wonder if the Mew View device, as it was uh, called here, was supposed to be the self-scope, uh, given how often this manga seems uh, needs to advertise game features. And uh, th- then again, like the self-company didn't seem to, to be much of a thing here, apart from um, its location being the uh, Team Rocket base. I would not be surprised that's what they were going for. Some of the game elements are never quite the same as they are uh, in the game itself. Uh, like, for, for example, the safari is originally ju- uh, just for viewing, and then things kick off into motion when mm-hmm. Red smuggles a Pokeball inside. It it was a very fun way to, uh, to like create conflict for, for that particular short story. I, I like that adjustment. We haven't talked a lot about the conflict with Mewtwo. I will say that I do appreciate how... I've yet to see, like, a depiction of Mewtwo in a lot of Pokemon media that I feel doesn't do a good job, but, like, I something I like about this version of Mewtwo is how much of the strategy is just based around trying to get the Master Ball to it and trying to survive based off of that. The question not being, can they actually beat Mewtwo, because that doesn't seem like something that's really possible, versus are they able to outlast it long enough to be able to actually contain it yeah exactly um and also i'm really surprised that more pokemon media has not used the mewtwo spoon that seems like something that's just kind of like a no-brainer kind of cool thing that feels like you could do some fun stuff with that idea of like mewtwo just conjuring up like a psychic spoon and just smacking dudes with it uh, it was amazing and think of the merchandise possibilities uh, you can have a uh, you can um in addition to your mewtwo action figure uh, you can also buy a little act- accessory to it indeed yeah i was worried you were going to make like a yaoi panel reference what <laughs> what yeah. don't don't worry about it don't worry about it <laughs> Anime conventions in the early 2000s were a mistake. Oh, oh yeah, the Yaoi Paddle. Okay, I, I heard it as a yeah. Yaoi Paddle. Uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I, 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 yeah, I meant to say Paddle. Yeah. Okay, okay, I, I, I know what that is. Okay. Also, one other thing that, that I was going to mention is Blue's Pokedex shows a town map image from the game, which was quite fun. But the, then the avatar showing his icon is red. So um, there can only be one reason for this. They, they must be boyfriends. It's it's the only possibility. <laughs> no other explanation. 
uh, I have one more note I forgot about. Uh, so I love how, despite the league match, showing how much red and blue uh, learned from each other mm. and, and how blue became more empathetic and understanding of his team. In the end, red's like, but you don't really understand friendship, blue. <laughs> It's, it's, it's kind of a line that undercuts everything else that happened in this chapter, which is very good. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, they got to get that shown in monologue in somewhere, you know? Yeah, understandable. Shall we move into the QA or do you have any more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's get to the QA. Can we bring up the questions? Uh, I'm uh, going to be winging for most of this. Uh, okay, I'll like to read out the first one. I've got them. Yeah. So, from Deoxys Owo, what do you think about the legendary bird fusion? Uh, excessive creative freedom? Opinion? I don't know. Good luck with your podcast. Uh, thank you, Deoxys Owo. Thank you. Thank you. I thought it was very fitting with the sort of tampering that Team Rocket was doing, and had been set up well beforehand with that Eevee. Uh, I got the impression that it was less intended to be, like, a cool, unique new design, and more like a a horrific homunculus, uh, which uh, job well job well done. Well, the, I I do recall. I'm I need to remember where I found this, but I do recall that this was an idea that they had aped from some early concepts that were being mm -hmm. floated around at Game Freak while they were developing the game. Like I know that they had this idea of potentially fighting like an amalgamation mm -hmm. type Pokemon at a certain point, but then deciding, oh, this is a little bit too dark. For a game and would be way too hard yeah. to program i don't know i think it's a a pretty good uh extensuation of the sort of like nature versus industry type of themes that they were developing throughout this whole manga because it's like the whole ethos of team rocket writ large take the things that are sacred and vital to the survival of the pokemon world and exploit it and mutate it in our own image for the purpose of profit and control it's kind of a thing that that they have to really build up and it's kind of like one of those cool things that requires them to all work together the way that they do in order to actually survive that whole thing i don't know i think it's a pretty cool beat honestly would not be against them trying to do more things like that in the future you, you do have basically hit the nail on the head i uh, from the start i never like expected this to be much of a like permanent thing i, um, I expected it to, uh, to be only temporary i didn't have much problem with that it, it didn't stop me for, from like when i created my um my own pokemon generations <laughs> uh when i was drawing these kinds of kind of things it didn't stop me for, from making oh i'm going to make a legendary pokemon that, that's that's fusion of uh Venusaur and Polyrath and uh, and also uh, oh, it's go it's going to have four golems as its store, so it's going to be, to be great. Yeah, I do think it is a testament to Mato's ability as an artist that the design did turn out as coherent as it did, because I imagine the challenge of having to meld together those kind of Pokemon the way that the story called for is not an easy task. Um, and, and I did, I did think that that it was a better idea that, than, for example, to bring Mewtwo back in Saffron City still, because otherwise it it would be kind of undercutting the importance of, of the legendary birds. It was a good choice that they kind of got the last hurrah and that. So then uh, another question from um, Aromantic 
Benzine from uh, from Reddit. Did you uh, enjoy red and greens dynamic and in, uh, interactions or red and blues more? Um, I feel like red gets portrayed as an underdog to both of them, but gets more of a back and forth with his rival, uh, whereas he's constantly tricked by here um, aromantic benzene means green to the point that, that it almost seems unfair. But I also really like that it uh, shows blue or green's craftiness uh, so what are your thoughts we should probably mention because we touched upon it on the previous podcast blue and green were originally named the other way around due to the release of the games in japan and then it kind of got turned for american flag reasons <laughs> to red and blue uh, i think i i think i prefer the overall dynamic between red and blue more with them learning from each other but the actual interactions are a lot more fun with red and green i i agree I, I think that, uh, I don't know, maybe that's just my Blast Toys apologia, but I feel like I feel like there's a lot of really fun stuff that kind of works, because when it's just uh, red and blue, most of the dynamic just kind of begins and ends as like, oh, I'm going to be better than you. No, I'm going to be better than you. Whereas with green, it's so much more unpredictable and... There's that chaotic element that I think really tests uh, Red's ability to adapt. And honestly, I think that there's like a lot of interesting stuff that kind of accentuates the underdog elements that could be seen in Red versus both of them. I think overall, though, uh, it's one of those por qué no los dos situations, you know? I think... Because I feel like if you had just one or the other, uh, Red's overall development would have been undercut, I think. I think he needed to be able to interact and develop around those other characters in order to actually kind of prove himself as a trainer. I would agree. Um, on, on top of that, I'm... I'm totally biased towards green uh, since she's my favorite character i think like her interactions with other dex holders mm. especially also she she kind of gets great interactions with just about anyone and uh, it's a testament of how how great of a character she is i think red and blue they're um it's one that benefits from being told across multiple little vignettes and one-off kind of run-ins, which is why I think for me I found their payoff at the end a lot stronger than... I know you you, got, you guys really like Greens, but I thought Green and Blaine's, theirs could have both... Their payoffs at the very end of the series could have both benefited from, like, a little more time. That that kind Again, that denouement that the, the series is never really allowed to have, or maybe just isn't something they have. Yeah, I would... I'd be inclined to agree with that. Although, I think, uh... Hoven, you haven't... Mm -hmm. You've yes. only read the red, blue, and green arcs thus far, correct? So, not to not to go into too much detail, but I think something that this manga does benefit from is that, as we mentioned earlier, we do get to see how these characters change as we revisit them. So, I don't know. I think you will like what you see in the future. I will leave it there. Yeah, they're allowed to grow up, which is uh, which is great for them. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the future arcs a lot. Which brings me to to kind of my mm. question that that I wanted to ask uh, during the course of this recording. Now that you've read this arc and and you know uh, how, how it ends and how it basically adapts the whole region, what do you think the yellow arc is going to be like? This is the question to you, Hoven. Um. I think it'll have a different main character. The ones from this arc will come back in supporting roles. I 
So no, it might. My prediction is that it'll be more focused on, I guess, the gym challenges. It, it's got <laughs> to involve the Elite Four some more, since they're clearly hinted at here. So perhaps this new main character will end up actually challenging them. Although, with that said, this arc kind of covered the gym challenges, so I don't know if variations on what we've seen of them is the way to go, or if it'll be more like, um, that's more of a background thing, uh, and the Elite Four are worked in in some other way. So, uh, it's very hard to say. Um, Ugh. I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm not gonna say anything. Not to spoil too much, but how long do you think the yellow arc will be? I've already looked at it's 50 chapters, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's an omnibus and a half. So yeah, no, it's a long and even I was kind of surprised when I saw that this is longer than than the red, green, and blue arc. My God. Mm-hmm. See, with me, I will I will avoid bits of the soundtrack or actual plot point spoilers like the plague for future things. But looking up like how long story arcs are or what story arcs are coming up, just in terms of their name, I do it compulsively. Okay. I think you're going to have a very interesting time reading through that and seeing how much those things came to fruition. Mm, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Holy shit. Also, also, I'm I'm looking through Blue's names and how they were localized uh, throughout like different. Uh, I'm sorry, Green's names and how they were localized uh, throughout different languages. Did you know that that in in one French translation of the manga, her name was Olga. Mm -hmm. That's a choice. I don't really have any notes on the volume extras. I don't think it merits a whole different section. I do appreciate how. Well, I appreciate how near the end of each like. The end of what would have been at each volume, they include a little, like, lit update on, like, each person's Pokedex in terms of, like, how many Pokemon they've seen and caught. And I think that's, like, a nice little bit of flavor text. Yeah, although uh, Route 1, Route 2, Route 3 uh, venture maps, it was a bit confusing given what we know to, uh, to be the names of the routes and the games. I think that is going to about do it, though, so, uh... Yeah, let's round off. Yeah, that, that is going to do it for the first proper episodes of Podcast Mon Adventures. You can listen to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. So uh, if you want to search for us and uh, don't want to click on all the links, you can always visit patreon.com slash Cheddar. This is where all the links are. Everything is in the pinned post. And that also is what helps me pay the bills. So if you want me to devote more time to making the show better, consider supporting me there. Yeah. In return, you can get your name in the YouTube credits or get access to some bonus content. As uh, we were once again dipping into Pokemon content on this channel, Spinning Ash and I decided to record a Nuzlocke of Pokemon Soul Silver. We're having a lot of fun with it, and, and a bonus perk is that we're naming our Pokemon after patrons. So the, the episodes should be available to all the patrons at the $1 tier. So uh, yeah, come check it out. And remember that much like the depths of the Hoenn Oceans, the YouTube algorithm is a dark abyss of sorrows and woes from which channels like these never resurface. And what helps us navigate it 
is liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast with a friend. On the same YouTube channel, uh, you can get access to my um, manga video essays and Duckface Diaries, uh, a retrospective podcast where Hoven and I cover the cult sci-fi manga World Trigger volume by volume. Uh, alongside special guests like the series Letterer, who we've had recently on. Ace Christman was also the Letterer of Pokemon Adventures at, at one point, so do check that out. Henry, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me in a whole lot of places on the Twitters at Kathman Henry, uh, that where most things are updated, but the thing I want to try and rely on more is my Tumblr page, which compiles everything into one place, podcasts, videos, tabletop, all of it, henrykathman.tumblr.com. But if you enjoy hearing my voice, be it through videos or uh, podcasts, you can find me on youtube.com slash henrykathman, where recently I made the endeavor of publishing a two-hour and 45-minute video essay compiling my thoughts and analysis on close to every major adaptation of the fairy tale Cinderella done over the past 25 years, a nine-month endeavor that I am finally free from. I haven't uh, watched your uh, Cinderella tier list video yet. I'm planning to write after recording this podcast, probably. Uh, and additionally, if you want to hear me just through the podcast form, I host a podcast called The Pink Isle with Emma Corey, where I go through different pieces of girl-centric video media particularly the Barbie ones, but we are currently going through the American Girl Dolls series. Uh, so give us a listen there. I recently listened to your episode about the, uh, f uh, I think it was the American Revolution. I, I forgot uh, what was the name of the girl. Felicity. Felicity, the uh, the, the neolib centrist. Yeah, no, <laughs> God, God, such a, yeah, she's a piece of work. Uh, <laughs> oddly enough, I don't know. If she's as infuriating as Molly was, though. Ooh. You can find more stuff specifically about that at pinkowl.podbean.com or at pinkowlpod on Twitter. Oh, yeah, shoot. I also have a Patreon. I have way too many things. Patreon.com slash Henry Kathman supports all of that stuff. A dollar a month. Appreciate the listen. Absolutely. Go check that out. Uh, uh, Hoven, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Hoven with an H. YouTube at Hoven with an H. Uh, and um, yeah, that's about it. Yeah, uh, check out the uh, check out his podcast, but Hoven's Hideaway. I've been honoured many times before. You uh, talk usually about about it's a mis miscellaneous pod, but you uh, talk about a lot of uh, long running manga endings. Uh, is a big thing, right? Yeah, we also we 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 talked about Toby Fox a little. We did an episode discussing Undertale and Deltarune with uh, cosplay extraordinaire and a star of the recent MCM Comic Con uh, cosplay masquerade, Zeno. Ooh. We're hoping to do one for chapter two at some point, but, uh, you know, n no rush there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, Lord knows we don't want to rush Toby on no. chapter three as well, so, yeah. Crunching is not good. You see, this is why I took so, mu uh, so much time to edit this podcast. See? See? It's reasonable. And once again, you can find all the links to that in the description or in the pin post at patreon.com slash Cheddar. Send us emails, questions, comments, suggestions at wensydale 12 at gmail.com or follow, follow us on Twitter at podcastmormonga or individual Twitters at Cheddar. Uh, at Hoven with an H and at Kathman Henry. Follow the Pink Isle podcast at Pink Isle Pod, I believe. Yep. Next time uh, we'll be covering uh, the Yellow <laughs> Arc, uh, which spans across uh, which chapters? Do, do, do you know? It's volumes. It's volumes four to seven. Uh, in the omnibus release, it, it's two and three uh, that you want. Uh, it starts from uh, chapter 
41, but you'll know where it ends because you know what the gold, uh, silver, and crystal protagonist looks like, so, so you'll be able to tell. It's going to be fine. I believe in you, listener. <laughs> All right, and thank you very much to you both uh, for coming on the show. Uh, this was our first proper episode of Podcast Morn Adventures, and it looks like we're blasting off again. Ooh. Smell you later. For, for alligator. That was terrible. Yung-ta!